0: This is Mr. Craig Cottle, owner and director of Nature Reliance School. Good to be with you again here on the podcast. Got a special one for you today. I say that every time, though, don't I? <laughs> every time I do one of these, uh, I feel like it's pretty special. But we always have a lot of requests to do some of the historical podcasts where we dive into a little bit of history. Usually that surrounds Revolutionary War history. today. I actually jumped into a little Civil War history, which, quite frankly, I do not know enough about. Uh, I was pushed into this a little bit by my friend Mike Travis at at a class, a man tracking and land navigation class up in Pennsylvania. He kind of called me out for not knowing the subject of our podcast today because this dude was kind of a Kentuckian. He was a Tennessean as well. Wanted to learn more about him after Mike told me about this story. And so I did, and now I'm sharing that with you here. Thanks for joining us. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Nature Alliance Media Podcast. A little different setup for us today as I dig into this historical story. I'm currently at a conference, The actually the Kentucky Tactical Officers Association conference. is basically a gathering of SWAT teams, SRT teams, SRU teams, and, and the like throughout the state of Kentucky, and they come together for a conference almost every year. And this year, I had the good fortune of being able to, to do three days of man tracking with all these guys and gals, so really excited about that. But if the podcast sounds a little bit different than normal, that's because I'm in a hotel room in Louisville, Kentucky, as I record this one. I bear with the sound. I actually hollered at Tracy and said, hey, Tracy, you think this will work out right if I go ahead and record right here on my phone? And, and uh, he'll do his editing magic, if you will, as best he can with what uh, I give him. So uh, I'm sure he'll do a great job of that. It's just whether I can make this sound good here in this hotel room or not. But man, I've been wanting to do this for a while and being stuck in a hotel room waiting for class to start tomorrow morning has put me in a position where I have some finally have some extra time. I'm out of the field. I've been teaching quite a bit lately and very thankful for that. Here's how this story came about. It's a pretty interesting story, sort of, how this came about. I was teaching a man tracking course and a land navigation course in Pennsylvania and a couple of the guys from the field craft crew, the Mikes, uh, were there. Mike Travis, who is who has been from the from the get go, a very vocal supporter of the Nature Reliance Media podcast and writing me, and encouraging me and sharing the podcast all over the place and all that good stuff. He's like, uh, do you know this story about Jack Henson? I'm like, I don't know who you're talking about, dude. And he said, well, you need to listen to this podcast on the way home from Pennsylvania. So I had like, a, you know, 10 hour drive or something. So I listened to it. Uh, it's basically a book. I listened to a good portion of the book, and then I list, listened to some other podcast, And then I did my own research on this dude named Jack Henson. It actually, his name was John W. Henson, and a lot of people refer to him as Old Jack. He was born in 1807 and died in 1874. Quite an interesting story. The reason Mike was asking me about it was because... Jack Henson lived on the borderlands of what we now call Tennessee and Kentucky. Well, we called it that back then too, but uh, he lived in that part of the world. Part of the time in Kentucky, part of the time into Tennessee. Tennessee is what I call South Kentucky anyway. So it's pretty much all the same place down in there. I think surely somewhere I've heard this story, but I have not at, at the very. I have not committed it to memory. That's for sure. And so it was really enlightening for me to be able to get into this history about Mr. Jack Henson and I'm going to share with you today. So Jack was basically a farmer from Stewart County, Tennessee. And from all accounts, it seemed like he was a pretty good farmer. Uh, Several different resources said he was prosperous and he was good at what he did and all that sort of thing. But one of the things that stood out about him was that he was very non-political. He didn't necessarily be... Uh, on one side or the other, he was pretty much doing his best to just live his life there on the Kentucky-Tennessee border near Stewart County, Tennessee. He opposed the succession from the Union, even though he himself owned slaves. And, and one of the things that a lot of the friends and neighbors who wrote about him said that he was a peaceful man, yet he he ended up being, in the very end, one bad dude meaning he went on a major killing spree. Uh, You'll understand why in just a few moments. But he had a plantation that was called Bubbling Springs where he lived with his wife and 10, I say again, 10 children. (laughs) That's a lot of kiddos. Think about it back then. You had to have kids to get all the farm work done, so they would pop babies out as often as they could. But when the Civil War broke out in 1861, he was very, very... Some resources say that he was fiercely determined to remain neutral and not get involved at all. But here's a couple things that happened. So, what happened was back then, there was this gentleman you may have heard of, Brigadier General at the time, not President, Ulysses S. Grant. He came by the plantation in February of 1862. The Henson family actually had him stay over at their place, and he liked it so much on that plantation that he made it his temporary headquarters during the war. I'm sure you're aware, but he went on to become president. He was actually the 18th president of the United States. Now, even when one of his sons joined the Confederate Army and another one joined a militia group, he was very, very strictly neutral. He did not take sides at all in the Civil War. He wanted to completely stay neutral, stay out of it as best he could, even though his boys were getting involved with it. He was at the time just happy to hang out on the plantation, take care of what needed to happen there, and get all the work done as the conflict arose around him and got worse and more more ugly as time wore on. Now Grant stayed at their plantation after he captured Fort Hendry and Fort Donelson, and after he took Donelson, he secured a very vital gateway to the rest of the Confederacy. This is really critical to the to the Confederacy. The Union's victory at the Battle of Fort Donelson was also its first major one since the start of the Civil War, which is interesting to consider as far as the way the the war eventually took place and hammered out and all the good things that came with it. But what this also meant is that the Union troops became basically a permanent permanent aspect, a permanent fixture, if you will, in the Kentucky-Tennessee border area where the Hensons lived. And so, while the family had no problem with that, others did. A lot of people wanted to take sides and determine who are you going to be with? You're going to be with the Union? You're going to be with the Confederacy? Because they would not take sides, they ended up paying very dearly for it. It's just a tragic story. And because they paid dearly for it, a bunch of Union soldiers did as well. So, in that region of the world, you can think about it Kentucky tried to stay neutral as a whole from a historical perspective. They, We were split here in Kentucky pretty much right down the middle in that there was literally family fighting family in that part of the world. And it was just, golly, I just can't imagine how ugly it is. We think it's ugly right now with the political leanings and everybody arguing and bickering and what have you on social media. Can you imagine that all being an actual violence against one another, family and friends and people you're close to and just a lot of killing? Just incredibly tragic. I hope we never go there again. But because that region was very sympathetic to the Confederacy, there were a number of guys that turned to basically guerrilla tactics, uh, which is one of the things that was learned during the uh, Revolutionary War by our military personnel. And that was learned from Native American strategy and the way that they fought. Because back then, when, for example, the British were here attacking the Americas and trying to take back what they thought was theirs. We still had that go out and parlay and meet and drink tea and coffee and all that kind of stuff and discuss battle strategy and then, you know, either fight one another or surrender or what have you. But one of the things that we learned from the Native Americans that we used exceptionally well in the Civil War, and it's about to get real ugly here in the Civil War, is that there are a number of people that were, again, sympathetic to the Confederacy that basically turned to these guerrilla tactics and they were better armed, and they, they wreaked havoc on the Union soldiers. And these guys, and you may have heard this term before, they were called bushwhackers because basically they hid in the woods and where they could attack Union troops before, you know, basically going back into the woods. Now, unfortunately, as people have a tendency to do, they didn't just go after Union soldiers. They ended up realizing how useful a skill bushwhacking was And so they'd target union farmers and sympathizers, and then they would just eventually go after political problems and people that they thought were just different from them. And some of these guys just became, in essence, outlaws who took advantage of all this uh, deteriorating world without the rule of law, which we talk about in survival circles all the time. But there was basically no law and order at that point in time. And so they were just preying on homesteads that were out there on their own all over the place. It was just a tragic time where guys that were started out probably doing a good thing, trying to defend their homes, saw the advantages of just killing people and taking their stuff. And so that's kind of the world that Jack Henson is living in. After Fort Donaldson uh, fell to the Union troops, it seemed, because it was, a very big moment in the war, the bushwhackers just went on a rampage. And they started doing more and more uh, different guerrilla tactics and even on the Union soldiers and their supporters as well. And because of that, it became basic policy to torture and literally execute anybody that was suspected of bushwhacking without a trial. So you can see where this is going probably. So in the fall of 1862, Jack's 22-year-old son, George Henson, And his 17-year-old brother, Jack, went deer hunting about a mile from their home. And they used to do this evidently on a regular basis. And unfortunately, they came across a Union patrol who suspected them of being bushwhackers. And here's what they did to them. The boys were tied to a tree and then they were shot. And after they were shot and killed, they drug their bodies back to town. And there, they took their corpses and they paraded them around Dover Courthouse... Use that as an example to Union's zero policy towards any resistance. Their remains were then decapitated and left there while the heads were literally taken to the plantation. Now, in front of the whole family, and this is where old Jack's going to lose his flippin' mind, rightfully so. In front of the whole family, the heads were stuck on two gateposts as, as an example of Union justice. The lieutenant that was in charge of all this nonsense wanted to arrest the the whole Henson family for their relationship to the two bushwhackers, as they were called. This lieutenant was informed about future president Ulysses S. Grant's stay there. And so basically what he did is he took it under advisement that he would not be taken kindly to any mistreatment of the surviving Hensons. And so the rest of the family was left alone. That was, as one writer wrote it, that was the lieutenant's second mistake of the day. Now, old Jack was of Scottish, Scots, Scots Irish descent, sir, which Craig Cottle is too. So um, I sympathize with old Jack here in in a number of ways, but he wouldn't let this is going to go and just let it happen. You know, he wasn't going to let it happen and go unpunished. So he buried the remains of his children, and the more I read about it, I don't know if that meant he, and I'm not trying to be too graphic, but I don't know if that meant he buried their heads or if he went and, and secured their bodies from the town and buried the bodies and the heads. I mean, can you imagine how difficult that would have been? I just It just hurts me to think about it. And then after he did this, he sent the rest of the family and the slaves down to uh, West Tennessee to stay with relatives. So you know what's getting ready to happen, right? Oh, Jack, H- Jack Henson's getting ready to have a reckoning. I mean, a big reckoning. So he commissioned a very special rifle, meaning he asked somebody to build a very, 50, a very special 50 caliber rifle. He didn't want any accoutrements on it. He didn't want a shooter star on that. He didn't want any fancy brass or anything on it. He just wanted this rifle to shoot and to shoot well. And one of the unique features of this particular rifle, you got to listen to this. Because I started digging on this rifle itself, not just the story of Jack Henson, but also the story of this rifle because it's rather fascinating, because it was 41 inches long and it had an octagonal barrel that weighed 17 pounds. The barrel itself just weighed <laughs> the barrel itself weighed 17 pounds. That's not the stock and everything else. And what this helped is any rifle that was of that type of length and of an octagonal style, I'll talk about that briefly here in just a moment, could hit targets. One author wrote, up to half a mile away. That's 880 yards, you all. It was just, just, it just kills me. Think about it, 880 yards away with a black powder muzzleloader. Now, I got to reading on octagonal versus round barrels and whatnot, trying to understand um, why this would be a big deal. Even though I knew this already, I've never understood why. And so, this is what some of the research showed. If you obviously, I think if you have a heavier barrel, it's not going to have as, as much vibration in it. Therefore, it's going to shoot more accurately. And because it is octagonal, it means that there's more surface area for it to cool after a shot, which is I've never thought of it that way, but it's pretty fascinating actually. So you shoot, you load, and it's cooled down. Because if you're if you're new to shooting firearms, one of the things you need to be careful of is that what riflemen will call a cold bore shot. Rifles when they're cold or when they've not been shot, and you're taking the first shot, will shoot one way, and then after that barrel heats up, it oftentimes makes it shoot a different way, and so. Once this rifle was shot the first time, it's going to cool off rather quickly, and so he can regularly have more accuracy because he knows what to expect out of the rifle because it's going to cool off rather quickly because it was octagonal. That's pretty interesting, I think, in that he was had that much forethought because he knew what he was going to be doing with this thing. Now, one writer went on to say that because of this octagonal shape, that this gun because it was talking about the the basically the 1853 infield and how those rifles would go out to 1,400 yards, and then this particular rifle of Jack Henson could go out, excuse me, to 2,000 yards, you all. I mean, that just, it just blows my mind to think about this cat doing this. Okay? Uh, I remember when I was a kid, and I would compete in National Muzzle Rifle Association shoots. We did what we called the squirrel shoot. Basically, you're running through the woods, and you'd shoot at steel targets. Sometimes they were a turkey. Sometimes they were deer. Sometimes they were squirrel or rabbit or what have you. You had to make flint steel fires and all this fun stuff. Man, it was a blast doing that as a kid. And nobody, I mean, it was one of them things that nobody really cared who won. I mean, we were, it, it was just like, for those of you who've seen Last of Mohegans or read about Daniel Boone and Simon Kenton, we were literally running with our long rifles and loading them on the run. I just can't imagine Uh, A rifle of that time shooting out that far. It just, it absolutely uh, blows my mind. So guess what happened to old Jack Henson? He became a bushwhacker at the age of 57. And guess who his first target was? You're right. It was the lieutenant who ordered his son shot and beheaded. And this man was shot and killed as he rode in front of his column. Guess who because you're pretty smart, you fair listener of the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. The second target was a soldier who placed the heads on the gatepost. I think I'd have nailed him first, just to be quite honest. But it didn't take the union very long to figure out who it was. Connect the dots. Here you go. It's old Jack Henson. So what did they do? They went and burned to the ground the abandoned Henson Plantation. Now, old Jack, knowing Backwoods of Tennessee, He understood that the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers were incredibly big hubs where transportation would happen for warfare and any number of different things and goods. So he stayed on both. And from very high vantage points, like in the cliffs and palisades, like we might see in Kentucky, he targeted Union boats. And when he would pick off the captains and officers, and sometimes he would even just do stuff to disrupt the flow of the river traffic in general. Now, one of the most crazy stories to consider of the whole piece of history here was when he took an entire boat of Union soldiers and they surrendered to him. And after Jack fired on the boat, the captain thought, hey, we're being attacked by the Confederates. And so to avoid any of his men getting killed, he just beached the boat, raised the tablecloth, said he was given up and waited to be captured. He had no idea it was just one man, old Jack Ensign. He couldn't possibly handle them all, so. Jack knew this, and so he just took off into the woods and left. Now, even though Jack stayed completely out of the political side of it, he began helping the Confederate Army for what I would consider obvious reasons. And in November of 1864, he guided Lieutenant General Nathan Bedford Forrest, think about that for Civil War history, to Johnsonville to attack its Union Supply Center. Unfortunately, Jack died in 28 of April of 18, 28 April of 1874, and he is now buried in the family plot in Cane Creek Cemetery. So, I saw a picture uh, doing some research for it uh, of his headstone. Listen to some of these numbers here. With the help of locals and constantly staying on the move, he avoided capture despite the massive, huge manhunt for him. His family wasn't so lucky, though. Two of his younger children had died of disease, while the son who joined the army also died as did another during a guerrilla raid. Jack survived the war. He had cut 36 circles in the barrel of his rifle to mark the number of Union officers he had killed. Union records, however, blame him for over 130 kills, although a lot of local lore and maybe even legendary, we don't know, have him listed as he only killed a little more than 100. Just one man seeking a reckoning for the people that killed his two sons. That's old Jack Henson, you all. What an interesting story, I believe. As I'm recording this, I'm watching. Not watching it right now while I'm recording this, but I have been looking at the news. As I record this, Kabul has fallen. It's going back into the hands of the Taliban. If I were to leave you with anything, I would leave you with this. There has to be a reckoning at some point in time. There is going to be a reckoning at some point in time. If not, we're gonna have this type of bloodshed visit us here on the homeland. I think uh has nothing to do with Jack Henson. I'm just concerned that you know people are out for blood now, and they're killing people in Afghanistan that helped uh, fight the Taliban. It's tragic, and I'm afraid it's going to come to our shores. so with that said, be ever vigilant, you all always stay vigilant and as always with nature Lines school come on join in let's learn together